0: Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, select verses. You can find the passage printed in your bulletin. You'll also find it on pages 961 and 962 of the Pew Bible. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Perhaps the two best-known facts about Jesus of Nazareth are, number one, he died on a Roman cross, and number two, his followers believe that he rose again from the dead on the third day. The earliest Christians did not believe that Jesus was merely resuscitated after what we might call a near-death experience, only to die another day, nor did they believe that he was raised in merely a metaphorical sense, because he continued to live on in the memory of his followers who loved him so. No, they believed that Jesus died a violent death and then was raised with a new physical body to a whole new mode of existence. And if that's true, well, then that changes absolutely everything about the world in which we live. But as Paul makes clear in the letter to the Christians in Corinth, The resurrection of Jesus is the hinge upon which Christianity turns. If you take away the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity falls apart. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing else he did or said really matters. If the resurrection didn't happen, well, then there's really no point in any of this, and I've got to get a new job. But if the resurrection happened, then it changes absolutely everything about the world in which we live. The problem is that people from the first century down to the 21st century have struggled to believe it. And perhaps I could illustrate that with a story from my own life. When I was about three and a half years old, I tripped and I fell off of a balcony and I fractured my skull. So if you spent some time with me and if you've ever wondered if I am all right in the head, well, now you've got your answer. But I was rushed to the hospital. I was in and out of consciousness for a few days, three days, but then I eventually recovered. And then not long after that, I went to church, and I attended Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher explained to me the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, about how he died and was laid in the tomb, and then on the third day, he rose again. And upon hearing this, I got ex- very, very excited, and I blurted out, the same exact thing happened to me. <laughs> now, the story, of course, is humorous, because we all know the same exact thing did not happened to me. We all know that the dead stay dead, but the fact that the dead do not normally rise again from the grave is not an argument against the Christian claim. That's actually part of the claim itself. Christians believe that what happened to Jesus was unique, and that is why we worship him as God. And so the question is, can we believe it? The fact remains that it's always easier to dismiss the resurrection as a mere fabrication or a fairy tale. So the question is, can we believe it? And if so, what difference does it make? And those are the two questions that I'd like us to take up today. Did the resurrection really happen? And if so, why does it matter? So first, let's consider, did the resurrection happen? Can we believe it? Now, I'd like to draw your attention to three facts. We can debate the significance of these claims, but we cannot ignore them. They are what historians would call historically secure. The first fact is that the tomb was empty. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church in Corinth within 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. And in verses three through four, the Apostle Paul establishes the fact that The death and resurrection of Jesus by this point in time was already a carefully guarded tradition. He writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the first point to be made is that Jesus really was dead and buried in the tomb, and then he rose again. The tomb was empty. Now, a number of alternative theories have been put forward. Perhaps those first witnesses of the empty tomb went to the wrong place, or maybe someone stole the body. Others suggest that perhaps Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, he merely passed out. And then later he revived in the cool of the tomb and left of his own accord. Now, at first that may sound plausible, except that it fails to take Into account the physical trauma that Jesus endured. Jesus was beaten and he was flogged, meaning that the flesh was ripped off of his back and then he was nailed to a cross where he was suspended from his wrists and was left to die of exposure and asphyxiation for at least a six-hour period. Now the guards who oversaw the crucifixion were professional executioners, And they would not have allowed Jesus' body to come down from the cross if they weren't convinced that he was dead. They knew what they were talking about. The Gospel of John tells us in chapter 19, verse 34, that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus in the side, which resulted in the sudden flow of blood and water, which may indicate the separation of serum and clot, which we now know is a medical sign of death. Pontius Pilate only gave permission for Jesus' body to be removed from the cross when he was convinced that Jesus was dead. And then once placed in the tomb, he sealed the burial site with guards. And those guards themselves would have faced the death penalty if they failed in their duty and did not keep the site secure. So personally, I find it a lot harder to believe that after being beaten and tortured and crucified, Jesus survived 36 hours without food or water or heat or medical attention in a cold, dark tomb, and then revived with sufficient strength to remove the boulder that sealed the entrance, escape detection of the guards, and then convince his followers not that he had been beaten within an inch of his life, but that he had conquered death itself. No, talk about a conspiracy theory. Now, in this case, the best explanation may be the simplest. The tomb really was empty and I find it intriguing that unlike the founders of other religious movements none of Jesus's followers are recorded to have venerated his tomb no one turned it into a shrine even to this day we don't exactly know where Jesus was buried so why did no one worship him at the site of his burial simply because they didn't believe he was there they didn't bother So the first claim with which we have to contend is that the tomb was empty. The second is that the risen Jesus was seen. The Gospels recount at least 10 different appearances of the resurrected Jesus to different people in different locations, in different states of mind. And here in his letter to Corinth, the Apostle Paul reproduces a definitive list of these appearances. He tells us that at different points of time, Jesus appeared to individuals. He appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to James. He appeared to Paul himself. At other times, he appeared to small groups of people. Paul refers to the 12 and all of the apostles. And Paul even says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. And clearly, Paul is appealing to these individuals in their role as eyewitnesses who were still alive And known to the community at the time of writing. So the implication is clear. Paul is saying, look, if you don't believe what I'm telling you about the resurrection of Jesus, here are the witnesses. Go and ask them for yourself. And all it would have taken was for one person to come forward and say, I was there and it didn't happen, or it didn't happen like that. But no one ever came forward. Now, some have argued that perhaps these appearances were nothing more than hallucinations, But the curious thing is that the appearances of the resurrected Jesus were limited to a 40-day period. They stopped as suddenly as they began. And people didn't think that they were hallucinating. People in the ancient world were familiar with the idea of ghosts. They knew that sometimes people had visions of loved ones who had died. But even if those visions happened quite frequently, they knew that the reality was that the body of their loved one was in the grave, and that this was just a ghost. But that wasn't the case with Jesus because his followers didn't think that his body was in the grave. And they didn't think that they were talking to a ghost because they could touch his body. They could look at the mark of his wounds. They watched him not only prepare but eat a meal. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a ghost eat fish for breakfast. So we have to contend with the fact that the tomb was empty and secondly that the risen Jesus was seen. But the third claim with which we need to deal is that the disciples were changed. The reality is that the Gospels do not portray the disciples in a very positive light. They never seem to really understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't have much faith. They're consistently jockeying for position with one another, and they constantly let Jesus down. But after the resurrection, they are completely changed, completely transformed, and now they are willing to risk their lives for what they have seen and heard. Now, of course, it's possible that the disciples made it all up, but if so, not one ever broke down and said it was all a lie, even at the cost of their own lives. Tradition has it that all of the apostles except for one died because of their faith. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned. Paul himself was eventually beheaded. Look, the fact is, people will die for something that they believe to be true, even if they happen to be mistaken. But no one is willing to die for something that they know is false. No one will die for something that they know is a lie, which means that something must have happened. Something must have happened to transform the disciples' fear into courage and their doubt into faith. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has argued that No one from a Jewish or a Roman background was expecting anything like the resurrection of a single individual in the middle of history while the rest of the world goes on as it does, no matter how hopeful or depressed they might have felt or how much cognitive dissonance they might have experienced after Jesus' death. So how do you account? How do you account for the sudden emergence of this belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus that sprang up literally overnight and then spread throughout the rest of the Mediterranean world like wildfire. These three claims, the tomb was empty, the risen Jesus was seen, the disciples were changed, may not mean all that much on their own, but taken together, they provide a compelling case for the reality of the resurrection. But then that brings us to this second question. If we can believe it, What difference does it make? Well, it's even more important than you may realize. If Jesus has been raised, it means that there is pardon for the past. It means that there is promise for the future. And there is purpose in the present. See, first of all, if Jesus has been raised, it means that there is pardon for the past. Did you notice that the Apostle Paul suggests that there is a connection between the death and the resurrection of Jesus and our sins. In verse 3, he says Christ died for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross was God's way of dealing with our sin, and that's why Paul goes on to say in verses 14 through 19 that if Jesus has not been raised, well then Christians of all people are most to be pitied, Christians are, of all people, most to be pitied if Jesus has not been raised because it means that our faith is futile. It's all in vain. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then God hasn't actually dealt with our sins. We're still in our sins. And then he goes on to say what's even worse is if Jesus hasn't been raised, then it means that the apostles are guilty of misrepresenting God because we're claiming that God did something that he didn't. But if, on the other hand, God has raised Jesus from the dead, well, then it vindicates the claims that Jesus made about himself. And that means that we can experience the forgiveness of sins. Now, sin is a word that we often tend to avoid unless we want to tell a joke. We prefer to talk about sinful desserts or perhaps guilty pleasures rather than describing the human condition. But sin at its core is simply self-centeredness. We human beings, we were made for relationships of love with God and with others. But in our self-centeredness, sin alienates us from God. It leads to conflict with others. And it leads to inner slavery to our own compulsions. And so one way or another, whether over a long period of time or short, sin eventually ends in death. That is its ultimate as well as its natural consequence. And yet the message of the gospel is that Jesus has come to interrupt the consequences of our actions. Jesus somehow mysteriously substitutes himself for us on the cross. So by going to the cross in our place, Jesus bears our sins and he dies our death so that we might experience the forgiveness of God. And that is not something to be taken lightly. Some of us may look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not perfect, to err is human. I know I've made some mistakes, but I haven't done anything all that wrong, which would require the forgiveness of God. But I would suggest that that's a superficial response. Look a little more deeply. Look a little more deeply at your relationships and the accumulation of all the wrongs that we've committed against one another and standing behind all those relationships is the God who loves us and made us, whose love is scorned and whose laws are broken in every offense. One author puts it like this, the things that we have done wrong seemed or mostly seemed small at the time. The word of encouragement withheld the touch of kindness not given, the visit not made, the trust betrayed, the cutting remark so clever and so cruel, the illicit sexual desire so generously entertained, the angry answer, the surge of resentment at being slighted, the lie that we thought would do no harm. Surely not too much should be made of it, we thought to ourselves. But now, it has come to this. If Jesus has been raised, it means that the grace of God is real. And who of us could honestly look at our lives and say, we have not done something or failed to do something for which we could never make amends? Who of us could say that we haven't done anything for which we could never change the outcome? Who of us could say that there isn't something that gnaws at our own conscience? But you see, if Jesus has been raised and if the grace of God is real, well, then it means that we can be healed, we can be restored, we can be forgiven. So if Jesus has been raised, there's pardon for the past. But secondly, there's promise for the future. Notice in verse 20 that Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? For Jesus' resurrection to be the first fruits suggests that it's just a prelude to our own resurrection. God has promised that he's going to do for us at the end of history what he did for Jesus in the very middle of history. In Mark chapter 5, there's a scene where a man named Jairus comes to Jesus and He asks him, begs him to come to his home quickly because his little daughter is on the brink of death. But when Jesus finally arrives, it's too late. She's gone. She's dead. But then Jesus goes into the room where she lies and he takes her by the hand. And he says to her gently, little girl, arise. It's time to get up and she awakes. And I believe that that scene is there for us to give us a picture of the ultimate future that God has promised for us. For those who are united to Jesus by faith, we can rest assured that one day he will take us by the hand and he will call us by name and he will say, it's time to get up. If Jesus has been raised, it means that he has transformed death into mere sleep and he transforms even the worst things that happen in our lives to a mere bad dream. And so all of this raises the question, what are we permitted to hope for when it comes to the ultimate future? Do our past sins and the inevitability of death create an impenetrable barrier that not even God can cross? Well, an atheist might say that death is nothing to be frightened of because when you die... There's no you left to worry about it. When you die, you will lose your individual identity. You'll just become a cosmic pebble within the universe. You'll be nothing but stardust. So enjoy the moment while it lasts. And I suppose some of us could come to terms with that reality, except for the fact that what we can't really bear is the thought of losing some of the people who are most important to us. Think of the people that you love more than anyone in the world. A spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, a lover, a friend. Our relationships form the very center of our meaning in lives. That's where we derive our happiness. And that's why for so many, the greatest crisis that we'll face in life is the loss of a loved one. We can't stand to bear the thought that we would never see that face again. That we would never hear that voice that we would never feel that person's embrace. But you see, that's why this matters. If Jesus has been raised and if his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, if God has promised to do for us at the end of history what he did for Jesus in the middle of history, that means that he's promising us that he will raise us with new physical bodies in order to live in a new physical world. God's goal is not to remove us from this world, but to renew this world. God's plan is not to whisk our souls away, to enjoy some ethereal space beyond the clouds, but rather to transform this world in which we live, to usher in a new creation where everything that has once gone wrong will be made right, and we will enjoy new physical bodies to live in that new physical world. Somehow, some way. All the suffering that we have experienced in this life will be healed and made up for in a way that will suffice for all hearts, as Dostoevsky once said. So, do you realize the significance of what Paul is saying here? Part of the problem is that these bodies, these old bodies, are made out of the wrong stuff. These bodies are subject to decay and to death. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has not only defeated sin and evil, but he's conquered death itself. Do you hear what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15? Because of the resurrection, death has been swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's been taken away. And so the promise of the future is this. You will not lose your individual identity in the cosmic abyss. No, you will get your body back. Now, some of you are hoping to perhaps be able to trade this one in for a better model, in which case I've got good news for you. You will get your body back, but it will be better than the old one. Why will it be better? If for no other reason, because it will last. This new body cannot be taken out by a germ or by cancer. But the point is that you will be you in the new creation, not someone else. And for those who are united to Jesus in faith, we need not be separated from the ones we love the most. If Jesus has been raised, what means that you will see that smile. You will be able to look that person in the eye. You will hear that laugh again. You will feel that person's touch. And you will not watch evil destroy this world. No, you will see it renewed with justice, peace, and love. One French philosopher who identifies as an atheist summarizes the contrast between a Christian view of the world and an atheistic view of the future cogently. André Comte Sponville writes, what can people hope for who have never believed in God or who have ceased believing in Him? Nothing. That is nothing absolute or eternal. Nothing beyond the darkest reaches of death which means that all our hopes for this life, no matter how legitimate, less war, less suffering, less injustice, run up against that ultimate nothingness. It engulfs all, joy and misery alike. This by no means prevents us from struggling for justice, but it does prevent us from believing in it completely, or believing that its triumph can be permanent. In a word, Pascal, Kant, and Kierkegaard were right. There is no way for a lucid atheist to avoid despair. But, If you believe in God, what may you hope for? Everything. Everything. Or at least everything that really matters. The ultimate triumph of life over death, justice over injustice, peace over war, love over hate, and happiness over unhappiness. You see, if Jesus has been raised, this is just the beginning. And the best is yet to come. But the resurrection of Jesus not only offers pardon for the past and promise for the future, but purpose in the present. Some say if there is no God, then there really is no meaning to our existence. The only meaning to our lives is the meaning that we manage to create for ourselves. But if Jesus has been raised, it means that there is purpose in the present. Now we might think that Paul would conclude this spectacular chapter in Corinthians on the resurrection of Jesus by telling us to make ourselves comfortable and spend the rest of our waking days rejoicing in the hope that lies before us. But no, that's not the way he ends. Because there's an important link between the future that God has promised and our present responsibility. And we must not separate the two. If God is going to resurrect our bodies and renew the whole world, then what we do in our bodies now matters. We're called to anticipate God's future promises in our actions now because that's the primary way in which God will give the watching world around us a glimpse. Just a glimpse, but a real glimpse nonetheless of what the world will be like when Jesus makes everything new. And so that's why Paul concludes this chapter, not by telling us to kick back and relax, but rather to get to work. He says, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, your faith is not in vain, and your actions now today are never in vain when they're done in the Lord. Look, everything we do in service to Jesus will have to be purified. Our motives are always mixed. We never get it quite right. Everything we do for Jesus' sake will have to be cleansed. But everything we do now in service to Jesus and the world around us will last. Nothing will be lost or wasted. Everything we do now matters. Everything we do in service to Jesus will be preserved in the mind of God and will be part of the future world that God has promised. So think about the significance that that places on all of our actions now. Every time you speak a kind word, every time you extend a warm embrace, every time you offer a listening ear, Every time you hold your tongue, every time you turn the other cheek, every time you go the extra mile, every time you love your enemies, every time you welcome a stranger, every time you're patient with a spouse, every time you play with a child, every time you reconcile a relationship, every time you offer a cup of cold water, every time you feed the hungry, house the homeless, clothe the naked, heal the sick, every time you write a song, every time you paint a canvas, every time you design a building, every time you dance a dance, every time you open up a door, make a connection, create a company, start a new job, serve a client, close a deal, every time you defend the innocent, rescue the oppressed, fight for justice, stand up for what's true, every time you sacrifice your money, give up some of your time and your energy. Every time you offer a prayer, every time you share the gospel, maybe every time you deliver a sermon, you provide the world around you with a glimpse, just a glimpse of what the world will be like when Jesus makes everything new. So, did the resurrection really happen? You better believe it. What difference does it make? It changes everything your past, your present. And your future. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Indeed. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this day that marks the resurrection of Jesus, and we pray that you would give us good reason to believe it. Help us to consider the claims that argue for the reality of the resurrection and to put our trust in you, and we pray that as a result you would change absolutely everything about our lives. Help us to receive pardon for the past, promise for the future, and purpose in the present because of what the risen and reigning Jesus has done for us by his grace. We pray in his name. Amen.